The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hi. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and welcome to the Visual Workplace, where we want to let the workplace speak. The Visual Workplace, our weekly radio show where we explore and celebrate the principles and practices, concepts and tools, methods and strategies, people and results of workplace visuality, of letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system, our intelligence, into the living landscape of work through visual devices, through visual systems. Why? So we can reap the enormous benefits of doing so. Their bottom line benefits, their cultural benefits. And you know what? For ourselves personally, we enjoy ourselves at work. We go to work, we enjoy ourselves, we do the dance of work, we're in flow, and we feel good about what we're doing, how we're doing it. We're doing what we are supposed to do, making it right, making it the least cost, the most safety, the highest quality, the least distance, the least time. We feel ourselves in our strength. We make our contribution to our company. And our company makes its contribution to us, the workplace that speaks. I'm really glad I'm here. I'm really glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. So today we're going to be focusing on, this is our second in our series of Visual Leadership, Becoming a Leader of Improvement, the Executive Function. And uh, we have an interesting show. I think that you will find it uh, uh, useful. <laughs> but first, a few announcements. I do want to say that we're, exci- we're excited about starting a new series of live webinars for the public, which will happen an hour after my Thursday shows. Uh, once every third Thursday of the month. Oh, I think I got that right. Is it third or second? Uh, every second Thursday of the month. The next one is October the 9th. and uh, The first one is October the 9th, and the next one is October the 9th, and we will be focusing on the basics of workplace visuality. We'll last about an hour. There'll be some moments about seven or eight or ten minutes for questions. Please send in your questions in advance to radio at visualworkplace.com, radio at visualworkplace.com, same old, same old. We will try to take call-in questions, but what we plan to do is take your emailed questions, organize them into logical clusters, and make sure to uh, answer as many of them as we can before we have to say goodbye. I'm happy to stay a little bit longer afterwards, but I know many of you will be doing this on your lunch hour 
or at some confined hour, and you'll have to leave right away. But I will stay over if there are uh, live questions. I'll be very, very happy to respond to them. If you are on our list, you're going to get an announcement later on today and then regularly. Uh, and if you are not on our list, then please send your contact information to radio at visualworkplace.com or you can simply go on our website, visualworkplace.com, and send us a note with your questions, with your contact information. We'll be in touch. Okay? I will be in the UK in December. I'm going to a whiskey plant. I'm going to Grant Whiskey. I'm very excited about it in Scotland. And I'll be going to another plant as well and um, doing probably two cycles of public seminars there under the um, auspices of True North Excellence John Tudor's organization. He's been a great supporter of my work for many, many years. And I thank you, John. All right. So I think that's the most of it for right now. Ah, my new book is coming out. I don't know, in about two weeks. I know I've been talking about it for a year. It was so hard, so hard to... It wasn't even writing. It was like writing a new book. We've added a lot of new material, beautiful new format, gorgeous cover, thanks to Ewan Sojono. Our designer who works in Australia, isn't this a wonderful world? He works in Australia, and we work with him, and he does incredible work. Ewan Sujano, just outside of Sydney, uh, and I give him credit for so much of the beauty of this book. Smart, Simple Design Reloaded. We'll get that out to you soon. It'll be on our website as well. I really think it's close enough to say it actually is going to happen by gum. (laughs) It's been such a haul. Oh, my goodness. It's the start that stops us, and it's the middle that stops us, and it certainly is the end that stops us. We've been working on the index for about three weeks, for heaven's sakes. All right. So let's begin our show. I, we, we began last week our discussion of the opportunity of the paradigm that I call becoming a leader of improvement. In the spring, we focused on that for the supervisory management level, and now we've begun our discussion for the executive function. And I have an organizing premise around this, and it goes something like this. Just because you hold the title of plant manager, uh, plant manager, I beg your pardon, the, the title of plant manager, VP, CEO, doesn't mean you are leading your organization. Even though you may hope that you are, or you may have hoped that you were going to, it doesn't mean it's happening. Leading has a specific profile and it has a specific outcome. Leading is not the same as keeping the doors open to the enterprise although there will be times that leaders seek that as the only viable outcome for the time being, let's at least keep the doors open. But as an outcome, as that, it would be very intentional and it would be accomplished by the leader by deploying that leadership profile. For me, and this may, we may part companies on this a little bit, For me, leadership is not a values statement, even though values are critically important. That is not what distinguishes a leader. It doesn't start with a values statement, a statement which is very popular in our conversations currently about being politically correct, about leading as though you have no authority, leading as though you're a really nice guy or a really nice girl. Being 
likable, approachable, honest, fair, cheerful, and balanced. All of those are important, but in my book, they do not distinguish for us what leadership is. They're simply qualities of being a good human being, being kind and compassionate. Hmm? And I'm not in any way saying that this is out of reach for leaders. On the contrary, but it doesn't help the leader to excel at their job, to even know what their job is. It is important for us to have values that guide us as people, and it is important that we bring them to the workplace and they become active. They become a part of how we function and how we see the world and construct the world around us. Very, very important. We make a contribution in that way, but that's not leadership. That may happen, that should happen, that could happen, that should happen, it should happen, it should happen, but it's not an organizing premise. Hmm? Leadership, and, and here's another thing. We all work hard. Leadership in its own way is the result of a ton of hard work, many mistakes, lessons learned, learned in the field. That is not to say that effective leaders, I want to say it again, are not also nice guys and gals. Some are quite naturally, but they are first effective leaders. Some have to learn to be, and they are effective leaders. Their niceness is not what makes the telling contribution to the company. It is not the impetus. It is not the drive. It is attractive and appealing within which the effectiveness works. It's a frame. It's a kind of personal style. There are plenty of books written on that and plenty of other conversations. This is not where I seek to go today or in terms of my contribution to leadership in the field because I see another pathway, another starting point. I see the starting point as visuality. But in truth, visuality is only a means, a means to get to something else, which is the true starting point. Now, I'm foreshadowing this. I'm kind of suggesting something that I'm going to be talking about in a moment, but it will take us a dozen shows to unnest it and surface the importance of it and how visuality helps. And what I'm talking about is the heart of the leader the heart of the leader. We all have one. We all have hearts. We all came with hearts. Leaders do too. But leaders have a particular heart. And many of the folks who are in executive positions do not always find it. They suspect it's there, but they don't know how to bring it into their work. They do not always bring it to their work, not because they can't find it, but Sometimes they think it doesn't have a place at work. So if they do find it, they say, better not bring my heart to work. Or they come to work, they do their work as a leader, and they say, where's my heart in all of this? Last week, we looked at the maturity model developed by the Software Engineering Institute, part of Carnegie Mellon, or under the housed at Carnegie Mellon University. It was developed in the late 1980s, early 1990s because so many software development projects failed. And they failed after two years. They failed after 13. (laughs) Remember that? As our guest Alex Blyer uh, last week recounted, 13 years of failure, 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 and finally somebody pulled the plug after millions upon millions of dollars. These projects failed. 50% of them 
we had the image last week of imagine that 100 buildings were built, 50 of them fell down. But the thing about software is you don't see the failure as clearly as you see when architecture collapses. It was kind of just another lost project. But these projects took millions upon millions of dollars with them, enough to buy, enough to build many new plants. And it also took the hope of the companies that supported them. That went down the tubes too, the hope and the vision. It was very confounding. So SEI was enlisted um, by the government to dig through the ruins and find the causes. And they did. They searched the failures as well as the successes, few as they were, and they found things. They found things out that they began to map into a kind of solution, what to do, what not to do, a kind of roadmap. It was a very valuable contribution, and the output was called the maturity model, or more accurately, the maturity levels model. It's a five-level model, and it represented, and it represents today, it's still in use, a stepwise way to diagnose a company before you launch a project to determine the likelihood of your success, which profile do you fit amongst these, and it also told you what had to be in place to be maximally successful. Hmm? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So let's just walk through the model very quickly because I want to uh, actually, I think we're going to go into a break right now and we will pick this up right after the break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Today's business marketplace is becoming increasingly global thanks to technologies that didn't even exist a few short years ago. Your business might be a startup or you might be one of the global 500. Either way, you're probably looking at customers and competitors in faraway regions. Listen for Global Reach with host Tay Revez as she brings together experts, ideas, and listeners to help you anywhere in the world. Global Reach is broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. 
listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, hi, welcome back. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and welcome to the second segment of our show today at the Visual Workplace. We are talking about leadership and the heart of the leader, the heart of the leader and visuality. What is that connection? So just before the break, uh, we were reminding ourselves of the maturity model developed by the Software Engineering Institute, the one we spoke about last week, and that it was valuable. It made a contribution. It looked at a lot of failures. It looked at some successes. It began to dig through the ruins and find the causes of each. Out of these findings, the Institute mapped a solution, as it were, what to do, what not to do, a kind of roadmap. Very, very valuable. It's called the maturity model, and it was a way to both diagnose the company before you launched a project to say, are we likely, is it likely we're going to succeed, or are we really, do we have built-in failure here? But it also told you what had to be in place to be maximally successful. So it gave you a fair warning. It mapped this. And remember the levels, level one was a project that was simply led by a person, a person with authority and usually with a strong, perhaps even charismatic personality. Mostly he, because it was mostly he at the time, it was a he at the time, this is 1990s, we were just getting modern, (laughs) he would hold the project in his head and issue directives through memos and correctives through memos and have uh, occasional conversation about uh, this and about that, and he had the plan, or we hoped he did. He had the plan and you didn't. And this turned out to be pretty much a sure recipe for failure. The project would fail. So that was the bottom of the barrel, level one. The second level was defined by the introduction of, well, yes, a plan. And if you read between the lines... It actually looked mostly like a list. Here's what we're going to do and in what order. And this ought to get us there. Whether it was scribbled on the back of a napkin or typed out on a nice white sheet, it was the steps captured in writing. And that brought some success. At least it brought some success, though not much. And that's the second level. The third level, quite distinctively, built on that and expanded it so that you didn't have just a plan, but you had what are the procedures, what are the protocols, what's repeatable, where's the documentation, let's write it all down and let's share it with others so they know the plan as well, and let's follow the plan. Another word for this is a methodology. So they developed a methodology And it was a methodology that had been tested and proofed and was repeatable. In a way, it was comparable to the kinds of things we do in standard work, where we write down the procedures, we clean them up, we squeeze out the air, we squeeze out the time, we squeeze out the difference, then we make sure that people do it in exactly the same way we we follow the methodology. And there's some supportive activities as well, and that was... Level three. 
Level four added one thing. Level four added measurements, metrics, what SEI called quality. It built in a feedback loop so that you would know how the project was going before it failed or before it had a winning success. The metrics would give you feedback, would give you in-process inspection, if you will. And this was distinctively a step because companies that had methodologies and didn't have this didn't have a chance to self-correct. They were kind of blind the way we are if we don't have any metrics or measurement systems. We're blind to the impact, the results that our efforts are getting. And that was stage four. Stage five was the decision and the effort to integrate various geographical locations in using the same methodology. It was focused on spreading the model out, spreading the model, the methodology that culminated in in level four across many sites, enterprise-wise, many departments to kind of create a best practice, a best practice. It was a very, this maturity model was a very, very important contribution in the 90s to a field, the software development field, that was hobbled. It was hobbled because it was new. No, no one had ever done it before on the planet. didn't know itself. It lacked concept. There were parallel efforts going on at Toyota. We, get, we got the Toyota production system and their methodology and their metric systems and their integration um, uh, frameworks, etc. But software was like a real newbie, and this model helped tremendously. And as with all good models, it helped us map against ourselves. We were learning from ourselves, but it had a built-in lim- uh, limitation. I mentioned it last week, and it's a limitation that I, I want to surface this week again. I'm bringing it up again because it's a very, very important for us to not mistake methodology for leadership. Methodology is not leadership. You cannot deploy a methodology and think that takes care of the leadership needs of your organization. And many, many companies do this. Methodology is a solution, and boy, it feels so good when you have one. But it doesn't do what leaders do. What leaders do is drive. Methodology is the roadmap, but someone has to get into the car, the car called methodology, and drive it. Leading means driving. Driving means you have a destination, you know the destination, you know the horizon, you know which way it is and which way it is not. It is intentional, it is designed, you are awake, and you know when you've gone the wrong way. The leader knows. And the trap that is hidden within all methodologies, which we think of as a solution, is that we wield it as though it is a function, an organizational function, that it takes care of whatever else is not there. Methodology is a tool and it must be wielded. If it's not deployed, if it is not deployed, then it is inert. It's inanimate. It can't help us. It's just sitting there in some drawer. In a little while, I want to talk to you about J.T. Battenberg. He headed up Delphi in its heyday. He was a strong contributing cause to why it succeeded and equally to why it folded. But that is a different part of his story and one that you can read about elsewhere, one that I'm not going to be focusing on today. But I want to 
in a little while talk about Battenberg as an example in case, a case example. But let us return right now to our premise of the day, the heart of the leader, the flame, that quantum that makes the plant manager, CEO, VP, GM want more for his organization and makes him find the energy, the resource, the savvy, the determination and cleverness to make that more happen. I call this kind of a leader a barracuda leader. A barracuda leader, as in the fish. The reality of his everyday work, the grind, the upsets, the failures, the misses, the near misses, this is all lunch to him. This is all lunch to her. She eats it all up. She glories in that, in that food. She glories in the mistakes because she's going to use it. She is the driver. She is the thoroughbred running the race, not because a jockey is on her back. The jockey is simply along for the ride. It's the horse's race. If you've ever seen thoroughbreds run, you will know they love it. They love it. They don't just love to run. They love to win. Have you been around thoroughbreds? I have a friend who trains them, and she has given me the inside scoop. She said, you know, there's no stopping a thoroughbred. You set it up right, they're going to win. That's what they want. That's where their heart is at. That is their expression. That is who they are. And it is this encounter with their own nature that puts the wind in their manes that sends their hoofs flying and stretching for that little bit more of span, for the sheer fun of it, for the glory of it, for the joy of being this, a racehorse, for the sheer joy when you watch these leaders of being this, a leader. The leader, tremendous responsibility, tremendous pressure, and a tremendous appetite for it. Where does that appetite come from? That is my question for you. Where does the leader or the plant manager who wants to become a leader find his heart? How does he find it? Where is it? Why isn't it here right now? The Barracuda leader. The Barracuda leader for whom improvement is lunch and who cannot walk down the aisle of any organization, any hospital, any open pit mine without saying, where's the improvement opportunity? Sharp eyes, keen intellect, tremendous appetite for adventure because improvement is adventure. It is the appetite I would posit the appetite of being alive, simply of being alive. Can we bring that to our work? Can we bring our aliveness to our work? And can we do it in such a way that the bottom line improves and that we begin to let the company win? Hmm? We win because the company wins. But what I'm saying is that for the Barracuda leader, for the leader who finds his heart, and I will 
map out to you over our many next shows that the tools and practices of visuality on the leadership level are specifically designed to liberate the heart of the leader and then to give it something to do, to give it a race that it wants to run and it wants to win. Hmm? Think about these things. So we're going to slide into a break, be back in just a minute, and pick up the conversation. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790 or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, welcome back. Welcome back again. This is Gwendolyn. Welcome to the third segment of our show today at the Visual Workplace. And yes, as the man said, you can reach us at radio at visualworkplace.com. You can also go to our website, visualworkplace.com. Lots of good things there. We're getting a new website. It's going to have wonderful new things membership and videos and oh boy i can hardly wait you can also call in if you want this is a live show today 866-472-5790 866-472-5790 i always want to talk to you no matter what <laughs> i'm rattling on but boy a conversation with you would make me stop and listen i'd love it so please don't hesitate So just before the break, we were mapping out the Barracuda leader in feeling what it felt like, this kind of unstoppable urge to contribute, an unstoppable urge to serve, an unstoppable urge to help the company do better. The Barracuda leader is what I am calling him and her, her and him. And I made um, a kind of an analogy to thoroughbreds. And here's the thing. The Barracuda leader rarely, rarely happens by accident. The only case that I can think of that I know, and I certainly don't know all the leaders in the world, is Winston Churchill. Where that guy was born with such a fire in him 
the world organized around. Sometimes I think that Hitler just got into trouble to give Winston something to do that was big enough to eat up his own need to contribute and serve and help and save. If you read um, memoirs of the Second World War, you, your eyes will open. It's the best. It's better than any soap opera you could ever imagine, better than any action film, science fiction, fantasy, the Enterprise, serendipity, everything. It's outrageous what, British, what Britain went through and what Winston led. Of course, you know, he wrote the book, so he got a chance to kind of skew it in his direction. But he was a very, very, he was, I would call him unique, and that means singular, only one. But the, for, for the rest of us who have day-to-day jobs and we feel the pressure and we feel the constraint and we feel the failure, how do we get out of that cycle to bring our heart to work? Because in our heart is the space that we need, the margin that we need to become someone new, to become someone bigger, more capable. It's the space we need to grow. And I, I said this to you before, you have to ask yourself, where does my growth lie? What does growth mean to me? Remember we talked about that? But here's the thing. The Barracuda leader doesn't happen by accident. That's what I'm saying here. In fact, it almost always doesn't happen on its own. Left to her own devices, the pre-Barracuda leader is covered with minutiae, with managing and maintaining, effectiveness, Her effectiveness is defined by simply getting through the day, getting the product out the door, living to work another day. Warrior, yes. Chief, no. How do we make the transition between the so-called daily grind and the race to the finish line and the race again and again and again, the glory of that race? I want you to please understand that I am not ignoring the indispensable role of the team the indispensable role of others. If we just look at the thoroughbred, no thoroughbred could find its way, its level as a winning racehorse without many, many hands and minds working in concert. Not just the care and grooming of the horse himself, but the building of the track, the gates, the stables, the roads, the infrastructure. It's a metaphor, yes. But I hope you understand the essence of it. This is not an exclusionary model. We are not hermits being leaders. We are not isolated. Every victory you can think of is people-based and incremental. Every Olympian champion, every Barracuda leader, there's no contradiction here, except maybe Winston Churchill, as I mentioned, because he's special in my mind. I'm probably that that particular, um, uh, what do you call it, that particular statue is probably probably has clay feet. I haven't discovered it yet. But returning to the heart of the leader, what I intend to do is to set forth and define in this series how the tools of visual leadership make leadership possible, make leaders possible. The principles and practices of visual leadership, the ones we will map out and explore over the next many weeks, are there to help. Specifically there, they are the structure within which the leader or the leader in the making will find the margin to find his heart, to find her heart, to grow. The business systems improvement template, the X-type matrix, 
the war room with its stacked metrics, the operations roadmap. These are the tools of leadership that create for the leader the room for the leader to grow into the role and to learn its protocols. You can tell me when I'm finished, when the series is over, if I've made my case, but I intend to make a case. What visuality buys each of us is a sense of control. Another word for control is a little bit of margin. The margin to find the leader within. On the operator level, it's self-leadership, working hands-on, value-add level. Whether it's a hospital, open pit mine, automotive assembly, utilities, machining, whatever. Self-leadership that gives us a sense of control and gives us as a gift the margin to become a bigger person, to grow. Mm? To find the appetite and the drive, the intelligence and the flexibility to either self-lead or on the executive level to be the leader. For those who are effective leaders, it is more an appetite to begin with than a skill. It's kind of a release, a liberation. And the skills then come with usage. The appetite is the appetite for improvement. For improving things, for making a contribution, the appetite if you look closely to serve. And, you know, in my book, greed is just a a distortion of that original impulse to serve. Kind of gets carried away in the wrong direction. It's the barracuda leader gone bad. Oh, well. (laughs) But we are so, when we are so covered by the minutiae, the tensions of our day, The inner appetite, our inner appetite is out of reach. It's almost unknown. It is unknowable. The structure that visual tools naturally provide is how we leverage out of that. We leverage ourselves a little bit of margin. The tools hold our thoughts and our aspirations. They hold our thinking. And in doing so, they allow us to see them, to see our thoughts and our aspirations, taking physical form, manifest. We see the future that they devise. We see ourselves. The Barracuda leader, without the tools of visual leadership, is like a goldfish in a bowl. It's a goldfish in a bowl. What's it going to do? It just keeps swimming around and around and around and around. Or worse, it's a goldfish with a bad reputation because if you have an appetite for this, a vision of a different tomorrow, an appetite for improvement, and you can't get it out, you will act it out. You will act it out and it won't be pretty. It is the heart that cries out for expression, and it got thwarted. You know this for yourself in your personal life, the importance of self-expression. Remember the poem, What I do is me, for that I came. So next week, I'm going to map out the seven elements of the leader of improvement on the executive level. They are different than the ones that we walked through in the spring when we were talking about supervisors and managers. There are also seven, and they nest beautifully together, the executive function and the supervisory function. But the executive function, which we will, I think we'll complete it in one show next week, the executive function is very clearly a leadership function. And you'll see that. And with that, we will tie the tools. So now I want to talk about J.T. Battenberg. 
I want to talk about him because he represents for me the Barracuda leader. And yes, he got into trouble, I know, and he paid dearly for it. He got, some people say it's greedy, I say he got a little bit off track. And I believe the things that he did, which you can read about on Wikipedia and elsewhere, just follow the um, trail on Google, was he was trying to save his company, company he was deeply invested in. So he was the um, CEO of Delphi, the world's largest at the time. This is in the early 2000s. He started about 1999 or 98, I think. And lasted until about um, 2004 or 5 when everything hit the fan. Naughty things. He was the CEO of Delphi, the at the time largest automotive supply company. And he was very successful. And his career was an interesting one. Because under his leadership, Delphi became an independent company in 1999 when it had been a part of GM and clobbered by it. That meant that Delphi was free to go out and find its own customers in addition to GM. It wasn't a single source supplier to, uh, to GM. And he, he had an interesting career because he began, I think it was the 1960s. Uh, in the institute uh, at the GM Institute, it must have been, sorry, it must have been 1980, 81. I'll try to pull up the figure in my mind. Mm. He was very, very well schooled. He watched lots of things happen. He watched, for example, GM force out their CEO, Robert Stemple. He was a GM lifer. He had served only three years at the top job. And he was outed in 1992. At that time, Battenberg was an executive vice president. He watched. He watched as GM's market share eroded. And Stemple took the fall. During that time, Battenberg also witnessed GM's revolution in which a largely non-management board selected someone else who lasted a while. He was exposed to... Uh, a, a guy named uh, John Small for about seven years. He was uh, very, very um, impressed by that. So he went through a kind of leadership training that taught him how to run an organization and how to configure and run a board. But this guy was ignited. He was on fire. And under his leadership, Delphi grew, but it grew because he was both a charismatic leader and also deployed methodology with a vengeance very, very, very effectively, Mm -hmm. even in the face of uh, a struggling global market. So we'll pick this up a little bit. I want to make a few points about Battenberg uh, in the next portion of our show. See you in a minute. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, welcome back. This is Gwendolyn. Welcome to the fourth and final segment of our show today, The Heart of the Leader and Visuality. And just before the break, I began a uh, kind of a description of the career of J.T. Battenberg III, who was CEO of Delphi from about 1999 until about 2004, if I've got my dates right. And yes, he was at the GM Institute in 1961. So he had a very mature um, uh, pathway. He really grew up at GM, learned a lot. And at its heyday, GM had 192,000 employees. Um, which is about half of what GM at that time had uh, because it had broken off with GM, and hundreds of plants, hundreds of plants all over the world, many, many, many of them in Mexico. These plants I knew fairly well because what was interesting about Delphi is that when it was uh, Packard Electric, which was then a a single-source supplier to GM as well, Packard Electric out of uh, Ohio, is that Sumitomo taught them visuality. And when I went to those plants in the 1980s and the 1990s, they were great visual plants. When I was there in 2000, I was at Delphi Ramir and Delphi Deltronicos and Matamoros and Delphi, um, oh, sorry, escapes me right now. These were fabulously visual plants. I think uh, the entire corporation was recently acquired by Autoleave and boy, did, did they get a dose of fabulous splendid high-level visuality. But the thing that uh, Battenberg did that I thought was genius was that he put a methodology in place that required 
all of these plants, these hundreds of plants, to march to that methodology and to move up the food chain on a five-point scale. It only had five levels, but the distance between 3.0 and 3.9 was years because the requirements were so specific. I mean, it was as though they took the maturity model, the fourth level of the methodology, and they cranked out every requirement about material handling, about inventory, about pacing, about time, about inventory levels, about everything, everything. Mm-hmm. If you, you can go online and see um, uh, a materials movement glimpse of what the requirements were, and you can see how very finely tuned it was. And so the plants would work. These, this, this array of plants would work the entire year to move up two points, to go from 3.0 to 3.25. And they would know every single price they paid to get there. They would know the effort, and they would have the learning under them. So the methodology became a template of learning, of growth, of change. It was not used lightly. It was driven from the top by Battenberg. And here's the thing that this guy did. You know, you know the leader these Barracuda leaders in their transitions when they go from what was working to what's going to, working, what's going to work even more magnificently. And at some point, when these plants, still under his leadership, had reached all of them, 4.5, 4.5 on a 5.0 scale, he said, okay, you've done well. You did very, very well. You now understand the principles of operational excellence. You understand quality. You understand pull. You understand visuality. Not my model, but, he, but Sumitomo's, which, you know, is I bow to it. Sumitomo is the great electronics company from Japan, very active with Packard Electric in the 1970s and 80s. You've done it, he said, and now I'm going to reward you. I'm going to reward you by giving you a new goal. With these plants that are now functioning uniformly to a level that I find acceptable, I'm going to say to you, I want you to get 30% more out. I want 30% more. I want 30% more. And this is how we're going to do it. Behind this curtain, this was a famous meeting at Delphi, behind this curtain are five senseis from Toyota. They're senseis emeritus. They were all retired. Each of the five divisions, you get one. They're assigned to you. Do whatever they tell you to. So the plant, the, the division that I was following was the Del, uh, Deltronico's division, the electronic, uh, the, um, they were making radios and other high-end items. And, and this guy, Yamada, who was an ex, a retired uh, Toyota uh, guy, under, but remember, under Battenberg's mission, said to them, okay, here's how we're going to get 30%. And they were all in cells. They had completely accomplished our idea of cellular manufacturing, tack time pull. Hmm? He said, I want you to all get into assembly lines again. Because you know the principles of quality, of pull of on-time delivery, of cost. You have that 
under your belt. You have learned. You have mastered these. And now we're going to take your mastery and putting, put it into a new framework. This was complete genius to make that kind of a jump. To, first of all, to conceive of it. And second of all, to permit it to happen. And third of all, to drive it. And first of all, to drive it. He drove it, drove it, drove it. And they got 30%. And when I went to visit that plant, everything was in assembly lines. 30, 40 people on a straight shot, and they picked up their 30%. Battenberg knew how to capitalize, to maximize the opportunity that he had so diligently and fastidiously developed. Whether he knew it at the beginning, I would love to ask. But he followed the methodology, and he made sure that the investment of methodology created a new opportunity. It wasn't done by rote. It wasn't done casually. It was done purposefully. This is the heart of the leader. This is using the the company as a canvas on which to work out its growth. This is the heart of the leader. I saw him once. He came with an entourage of like 12 people with his cashmere coat on his shoulder, his mantle, and he gave an hour speech somewhere at Shingo Prize or at uh, AME or somewhere. And he was impressive, but I was more impressed by his entourage. <laughs> you couldn't get close to this guy. He was surrounded by bodyguards. They were very well dressed and they looked just like executives like himself, but you couldn't fool me. <laughs> he was very impressive. He did it all. He had the shape, the image, and the heart of a leader. So I want you to think about this as we move into a kind of conceptual discussion of the seven components of leadership. This model has come out of the last 25 years that I've been watching leaders and working with them and seeing them, seeing their hopes and seeing their, their, uh, their need to grow as people and to make a contribution to the organization. I've been very moved by that. And I want to pass on this model, which you can use if you are an executive, a GM, a plant manager yourself. You can contemplate. And you can, I think you can get mileage out of it, but it has a particular bend to it. We're not just following a methodology. We are creating margin for our heart to live in, for our heart to live, you see. So we can be happy. We can be happy. I had a wonderful time with you today. I'm excited about what's happening next. And I will see you the next time. Thank you. We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.